Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we have sung your praises because you are worthy. We look to your word now, grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. Grateful for the help of the Holy Spirit who illuminates it to our understanding and helps us to apply it in our lives. So Father, I pray that we would be attentive to your word now, and I pray that uh, we would be eager to hear uh, from your word that we might live lives that glorify you as we apply it in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. At uh, various points in my ministry, I have been known to have an object lesson or two for the children in the congregation. And uh, I'm really glad that the elders do that here, that they have this children's message because the children are a vital part of who we are. And uh, we want to have them uh, taking in God's word. And, uh, and so uh, sometimes my message in those, those uh, children's times uh, took the form of what I called a sermon in a sack. I'd bring a brown paper sack and the kids would all wonder, what's he got in the sack today? And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a great little time for an object lesson. And, and what every preacher hates to admit is that sometimes the only thing that people remembered from the morning was the sermon in the sack. You know, it was you know, more memorable and, and made a better point than the main event did. So that, that happens. Now, one of the, the most memorable ones that I can recall was a, a sermon in the sack where I wanted to get across the idea that sometimes what appears to us to be an interruption ends up being the most important part of our day. The thing that, that interrupts us, the thing that bothers us, can prove to be the thing that God was really using and uh, wanting us to pay attention to. And so that particular day, I got the kids up around me and I had my sack and I, I pulled out an apple. And I was starting to talk about the apple. You know, how many seeds do you suppose are in an apple? You know, we were chatting about that. I said, how many apples do you think there might be in a seed? You know, only God knows how many apples might come out of a single seed and, you know, that sort of thing. That wasn't the lesson. The lesson was sometimes an interruption is the most important part of our day. And so while I was talking about the apple, a friend of mine who nobody knew came in through the side door. Uh, we were in a rented facility. It was open to the public. Anybody could come in. And, and so this side door kind of opens up and this friend of mine that nobody in the congregation knew came in and he was dressed poorly on purpose and hadn't shaved in a couple of days because I put him up to this. And he just sort of stood there and he was watching me with this apple in my hand. And I turned, I looked at him, I said, can I help you? And he just said, um, I, I haven't eaten in a couple of days. I said, I've got an apple. Would, would that help? He said, yeah, that would really help. And I, I gave him the apple and he thanked me and just kind of walked back out through those doors. And, uh, you know, the lesson was, it wasn't about me talking to you about the apple. It was me having an opportunity to serve this guy. This, this interruption became the most important thing. That was, it was a good little object lesson, I think. In fact, it was so convincing 
that what I found out after the service was over was that uh, one of the men in the congregation saw this, this guy walk into our service and got up to remove him. And uh, one of my elders suspected what I might be up to and just kind of grabbed the guy and brought him back to his seat and said, just hold tight, I think he's up to something. And so uh, for, for those two men alone, uh, the object lesson really made a point. I think uh, it was particularly memorable for them. Sometimes what we see as an interruption becomes the most important part of your day. The value of an object lesson lies in its ability to communicate truth. To the degree that an object lesson can communicate truth, it is a valuable object lesson. If it doesn't communicate truth well, if people go, well, that was, that was funny or that was memorable or whatever, and, and there was no truth imparted, it's not very valuable at all. As we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, we're gonna look at Proverbs today that deal with the home. And what I wanna get across is the idea that the home is a great object lesson to the world. It can be one of God's greatest object lessons as we live out God's truth in our homes in front of people who are watching us. And if that's the case, what are the lessons, what are the truths that the home can illustrate to those who are watching? I want to suggest three as we look at Proverbs. Those three are, are these. The home shows the world what it is to live in truth. The home shows the world what it is to live under authority. And the home shows the world what it is to live with honor. Those three we want to look at this morning. Let's take the first one. The home shows the world what it is to live in truth. We looked at Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. Let's just touch on it again. It's really pretty central, I think. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The home shows the world what it is to live in Truth, truth is conveyed in the home. A child isn't a blank slate when he or she comes into the world. Uh, anybody who's had more than one understands that up close and personal, right? They're all very different right from the get-go. So they're, they're not blank slates. They, they've got some programming wired into them by design from God, but they're not totally pre-programmed either. Someone has to train them, and the responsibility for doing that lies in the home. We begin that training with some assumptions. Let me just mention a few assumptions. The first is that it matters what we teach. If we are responsible for imparting truth in the home, it matters what we teach. There is objective truth. We're living in a culture that denies that. We're living in a culture that sees everything as relative, everything as subjective, a culture that believes there is no objective truth. And frankly, if there is no objective truth, it really doesn't matter what you teach. Any truth is as good as another if there is no objective truth. But we believe there is objective truth 
And that truth is found in God's word. He has revealed himself to us. He has given us truth. And we teach that. It matters what we teach. Second assumption is, is one that flows right out of that, and that is that truth is attainable. Uh, it is attainable. We can get hold of it. Now, sure, there are some subjects in Scripture that are less clear than others. So we need to give grace in some areas that are less clear and less central to the gospel message. But we need to uphold the truth of God's word and run with that truth as he has revealed it. And that leads to a third assumption, truth is relevant. It's relevant, it's not just stuff we talk about in church on Sunday morning. This is valid for the rest of the week as well. It's practical, everyday stuff that we can flesh out every day of our lives. One of the things I like best about Proverbs is just how very practical it is. Uh, it talks about real relationships, real life situations, things we experience every day. And as we put those things into action, we grow in wisdom. So truth is relevant. And that leads to a fourth assumption. Truth needs to be imparted. People don't just get it on their own. In fact, left to ourselves, uh, we will end up where people were at the end of the book of Judges, one of the darkest times in human history. If you look at the last verse of the book of Judges, you'll find it saying this, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Total relativism, total subjectivism, no truth to be found. And that's a terrible place to be. Truth needs to be taught, needs to be imparted. And that leads to a fifth assumption, someone has to take responsibility to impart it. Someone has to take responsibility to teach it. According to scripture, responsibility for teaching lies in the home. We read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter six, starting at verse six. Listen to this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's where it starts, God's word making an imprint on our own hearts, and then it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The NIV says you shall impress them on your children. Parents, do this. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So many opportunities to impart the truth of God's word uh, from sunrise to sunset in everything we do in the home. It is important in our taking responsibility for teaching that mom and dad say the same thing. You've got to be on the same page. Uh, can't have one teaching from one source and one from another. In uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 that we looked at a moment ago, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Dad and mom both working at it, saying the same thing as one another. The home provides the framework, then, for all other learning 
And the home is where values are taught. A school can partner with you, parents are still responsible. The church can partner with you, parents are still responsible. Parents are responsible to give instruction. Verse eight, again, hear my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. So whether you are teaching your kids how to study the Bible or how to pray or how to ride a bike, the responsibility for their training lies with the parents. And since values are more caught than taught, Parents are also responsible to give a good example. Chapter 20, verse 7 says, The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. See the connection? The righteous man leads a blameless life, and that blesses the children. Uh, they're, They're setting an example that the children can follow. And you can't effectively teach one thing if you're living another. You need to live consistent with the message that you're trying to get across. One last assumption, and this is the challenge of Proverbs and the reason that Proverbs is so full of reminders that we need to listen. Remember we we talked about wisdom for the ears and I said the first duty of the wise is to listen. The learner has to be open to the truth. That goes for all of us. It's not just for the children, it's for all of us at all stages of life. We have to be open to the truth. Look again at at chapter one, verse eight. Hear my son, your father's instruction. Okay, so who's dad here? Who wrote this? Who is the father appealing to his son? It's Solomon, right? Who's the son? We go, he had a lot of wives and concubines. There were a lot of sons. Yeah, there were. Who was the son who would succeed him as king? Rehoboam. Did he listen to his father's instruction? Did he pay attention to his mother's teaching? The the learner has to be open to the truth. In recognizing these things, we not only bring our homes under the lordship of Christ, But we also show the world something important. We show the world what it is to live in truth, God's truth. If we live in truth in the home, our home becomes an object lesson that God can use. God the Father has given us his instruction in his word and we can pass it on in the home. God the Son has given us his example, a life given wholly to the glory of God, and we ourselves can live it out in the home. God the Spirit still opens hearts to the truth, and we can rely on him as we respond to his word in our homes. Live in truth. The home shows the world what it is to live in truth. The second thing the home shows the world is what it is to live under authority. To live under authority. Uh, Chapter three, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Love requires discipline. 
One of the, the key concepts that we see repeated again and again throughout Proverbs is this idea of discipline. And there's a good reason for it. We need it. Uh, need to be taught early that we are accountable to someone for our actions. We need to be reminded that a day of reckoning is coming. And that's a subject we hear very little of these days. One of the inescapable facts of life, though, is that we live under authority. We don't rule the universe ourselves. Children need to learn that lesson, and they need to learn it early, and they need to be reminded of it often, some more than others. Those reminders come in the form of discipline. Discipline teaches people how to live under authority. Let me just share some characteristics of discipline as I've studied the, the concept out in the book of Proverbs. The first is the discipline should be loving. Loving, not given in anger. Chapter three, verse 12 says, the Lord reproves or disciplines those he loves. The book of Hebrews tells us if we're not disciplined uh, that, that uh, we are illegitimate children because God disciplines his true children. He disciplines those he loves. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24, Jeremiah prays to the Lord and says, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. When we discipline our children, it's not to get our frustration out. It's to get a point across to get a lesson across. It is a loving thing to correct behavior that isn't God-honoring and that will ultimately be harmful to the child if it's not corrected. So discipline needs, first of all, to be loving, and then it needs also to be purposeful. The purpose of discipline is to drive out folly or rebellion. In chapter 22, verse 15, it says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Discipline is intended to drive out folly or rebellion. Now let me comment on this idea of a rod, since we find it repeated throughout the book of Proverbs. It speaks of consequences for misbehavior. Whatever form those consequences take in your particular home. Whether you practice corporal punishment, literally, or not, what you need to do is impart consequences for misbehavior that a child, first of all, can understand, and second of all, that he or she doesn't like. And so by experiencing consequences that they don't like, they will uh, move away from that kind of misbehavior. It will help the child make a better choice next time. So discipline needs to be loving, it needs to be purposeful, it needs to be instructive. Chapter 29, verse 15 says, the rod and reproof give wisdom but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You want the child to grow in wisdom as a result of the discipline you impart. 
When you discipline a child, you need to help them understand why you discipline them. Help them to grow in wisdom. Another characteristic of discipline is that it needs to be protective. Chapter 23, verses 13 and 14 say this. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. There's, there's a double meaning there, isn't there? Um, he's saying if, if you discipline your child, you're not going to kill him. Uh, you won't take his life physically. And in fact, what you'll do is you'll save his life spiritually. We're protecting them from something that is ultimately destructive if left to go on the course that the child was starting to go on. So if we exercise discipline well in the home, we teach our children and others who are watching about God's discipline of us, how he disciplines us in those ways. His discipline is always loving and purposeful and instructive and protective. And our children will be better prepared as a result to understand how God disciplines those he loves. If we fail to exercise discipline in the home, we fail to impart one of life's most vital lessons that the home has to offer, how to live under authority. Benjamin Spock, the guy on the left, not the guy on the right, I thought we were getting a little heavy, I thought you might need a little lightness here. Guy on the left, Benjamin Spock, uh, was an American pediatrician whose book on baby and child care challenged the way people were raising children and created more child-centered homes. He suggested replacing traditional methods of discipline with affirmation instead. Don't tell them no, redirect them to something else. Affirm them in who they are instead of putting boundaries on them. You can call me a dinosaur if you like, but I believe some of the disregard for authority that we're seeing across our culture today comes directly from the flattening of the authority structure in the home. Children need to learn how to live under authority so they can grow up to be adults who understand how to live under authority. We need to have parents step up to their role in the home as those who demonstrate what it looks like to live under authority, to live in relationship with a loving heavenly father who we want to submit to, who we want to live for. Our children's concept of God is so greatly shaped by what they see in us as their parents. Instead of child-centered homes, I believe what we need are more mission-centered homes where parents lead their children to respond to the call of Christ. Our homes can show the world what it means to live under authority. And the third thing that our homes can show the world is what it is to live with honor, to live with honor. Proverbs chapter three, verse 35 says, the wise will inherit honor. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To inherit honor. 
honor gets inherited. It gets passed from one generation to another, and it's modeled in the home. Gary Smalley put out a a series of videos on relationships. I remember one of the lessons he had, he, he was great with props. And he had a violin sitting on a table and he, he picked up the violin and showed it to his audience. It had a, a couple of strings hanging out. It didn't look very good at all. But then he called somebody up from his audience and said, here, take the violin and, and if you look just right uh, through those squiggly things in the, the lid of it, uh, you'll see something written. What do you see? And the guy looked at it and went, <gasps> it said Stradivarius inside. And, and that gasp was a response of honor. When, when we gasp like that, we're, we're saying, I, I am in the presence of something or someone worthy of honor. And so Smalley used to do that with his kids. One of his kids would walk in the room and go, oh, I can't believe you're here. You know, or they'd sit at the dinner table and go, oh, I, I can't believe I get to have supper with you. I can't believe I get to tuck you into bed. And they go, oh, dad, you know, all embarrassed. But it was his lighthearted way of saying, you matter to me. I, I want to honor you. You are someone worthy of honor. We uh, see honor in the home in every relationship. It should characterize all of the relationships in the home. We show honor to our children. Showing honor to our children that we call training. We honor them when we train them in God's ways. We show that we believe that they are worth investing in. Chapter four, verses three to six say this. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. You see the careful instruction of a father toward a son that he loves. We honor our children when we train them in the ways of the Lord. We train them because we love them and we want them to succeed in life with the wisdom that God has given us in his word. So we invest in them through training. And as we do, we show honor. We show honor, boys and girls, we show honor toward our parents. And we do that through obedience. Showing honor toward parents we call obedience. A wise son or a wise daughter is one who has taken and applied the lessons that his or her parents have been teaching. So, boys and girls, this is for you. Look at me, okay? Your response to your parents is really important. It's really important. There are a few things that your response to your parents will do. One is that it will either bring them joy or grief. You, by your response to what they're teaching you, can bring them great joy or can bring them grief. 
In chapter 10, verse one, it says, a wise son makes a glad father. You can make them joyful and glad. It says, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And so when we respond with obedience to our parents, we can make them glad. And when we don't, we make them very sorrowful. Our response to what they've been trying to teach us also shows them what we think of them. In chapter five, or 15 rather, chapter 15 verse 20 it says, a wise son makes a glad father but a foolish man despises his mother. When we disobey them, we're showing them we think very little of them. So show them that you think that they're special, show them that you hold them in high regard. And chapter 19 tells us that how we respond to them when they're trying to teach us can actually either make them or break them. Chapter 19, verse 13 says, a foolish son is ruin to his father. You can ruin your parents by how you respond to them. So let's respond to them in obedience. God wants us to honor our parents and we do it through obedience. There is honor also extended to our spouse and showing honor toward our spouse we call faithfulness. The bond of marriage is held in the highest regard in uh, the book of Proverbs. If you want a real vivid description of that, look at chapter five, verses 15 to 19. It's kind of PG rated, so I'll leave you to read that on your own. But understand that it shows the bond of marriage in the highest regard. And besides that, it shows infidelity in the darkest of colors. In chapter six, verses 27 and 28, we're reminded that if you mess with fire, you're gonna get burned. And it talks about infidelity in those terms. It's messing with fire. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? If you mess with fire, you're gonna get burned. Stay faithful to your spouse. We're told in chapter seven, verse 27, that infidelity leads us down a road we don't want to travel. Speaking of an adulteress, it says, her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. It's a road you don't wanna go down. Showing honor toward our spouse we call faithfulness. And so showing honor in the home teaches lessons about God, the obedience and faithfulness that are our proper response to him. The home is God's great object lesson to the world. It can show the world what it means to live in truth, under authority, and with honor. To build a house, you need a building permit. To tear one down, you need a demolition permit. And in the home, we have both. We have both. Chapter 14, verse one says, the wisest of women built her house, but folly, also depicted as a person, with her own hands, tears it down. We have the capability of building a home that will reflect the character of God to a watching world. 
With the same hands, though, we can also tear down whatever testimony the Lord might have had in our home. When we bring our home under the wisdom of God's word, we present the world with an object lesson that speaks volumes about God and about the way he deals with his family. The way we live at home can help show others what a relationship with God looks like. It's a winsome witness. So I would ask, can we covenant together to lead our homes with godly wisdom so that he can use our homes to teach others about himself? Parents, children, all of us, Can you tell God today that you want your home to stand for him, to reflect his wisdom, to be an object lesson to others around you? You'll find some questions for further thought in the back of your program, and I hope that you'll use those maybe around the dinner table, maybe in a small group setting this coming week as we seek to apply God's word in our homes. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, your word is so full of wisdom. I pray that you would impress upon us our need to respond to that, that our homes would be an object lesson to those living around us, and that as we seek to glorify you in our homes, we would be teaching lessons, even through how we live, about your relationship with us, how you are a loving father and we are your obedient children who desire to glorify you and make your name known. And so help us to do that through our homes for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.